0: When the market is booming, like it is now, I mean, things are hot, things are moving rapidly. For the investor, the best advice I can give is get yourself into a cash heavy position as quickly as you can.
1: Best ever listeners, do you want to make more money on your real estate projects? Well, I'm guessing that I'm hearing you say, oh yeah, baby. (laughs) Well, guess what my friends? Today's... Best Ever Sponsor Fun That Flip is working with well one of our previous Best Ever guests who has the most po- one of the most popular episodes Jay Scott if you aren't familiar with this episode then go check that out episode 217 if you are because you're a loyal Best Ever listener then you know that he knows how the heck to both analyze deals, especially flips, how to optimize the profits on those flips, and how to look at the market. Because of that, Fund That Flip, today's sponsor, has worked with him and put together a guide that is the seven tips to increase your real estate profits in today's market. Go check that out. Go get that guide. I've read through it myself. I've learned a lot of things from it, from how to analyze the market cycles as well as how to optimize profits and not lose money or mitigate your risk for losing money on your deals. Go check it out, fundthatflip.com forward slash bestever. That's F-U-N-D-T-H-A-T-F-L-I-P.com forward slash bestever you're going to learn the tools to better understand your local market and position your business for success. You're going to know how to analyze the real estate cycle and how to use short-term investing to capitalize on the market cycle, and seven concrete actionable tips to make more money on your deals FunThatFlip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate podcast. And you're listening to it. That's right. With us today, we've got Lee Arnold, who has joined us on the show before, episode six hundred and fifty-three. If you want to hear his best ever advice, then go listen to that after this episode. Today we're going to talk about a sticky situation he's been in. And how he overcame it because he is an active fix and flipper who's doing 50 deals this year. He's been featured as an investment strategy expert by Forbes, Boston Globe, and a lot of other media outlets that you've heard of. And you can say hi to him at securedinvestmentcorp.com. So he's got a lot to tell us, but we're going to focus our conversation today on a sticky situation how he overcame it. So that you know how to overcome it if you come across that sticky situation. That being said, Lee, before we get into that, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background just to refresh our memory?
0: Yeah, and again, thanks for having me here, Joe. Glad to be back. Something about me, in addition to the bio you read, is that I'm a private money lender, and we lend money nationwide across the country to real estate investors to acquire properties so that they can fix them and sell them for a profit. And that's really important as we get into some of the sticky challenges and circumstances I've been through just as a lender – being on the other side of the coin of being the one now that people owe money to. So we are lending nationwide and have been doing that for quite some time now.
1: I suspect that's a perfect segue into your story. Tell us the story of a challenging situation and how you overcame it.
0: So I was doing a development deal in Park City, Utah, which to skiers and movie buffs will mean a lot because it's got the greatest snow on earth, and it's also where the Sundance Film Festival is held. But we were doing a big development on the backside of the Deer Valley Ski Resort, where a three-quarter acre piece of ground was anywhere from 1.6 To 2.4 million just for the dirt. So these are very high end lots. They're what's called a ski in, ski out lot. So you literally step out your back patio and you are on the ski run. What we were doing is we were developing these into a timeshare where instead of selling one house to one family, we were selling one-ninth ownership into the property so that multiple families could enjoy it because this is a 15,000 square foot house and we were building three of these things. Our pre-construction development bid was 6.9 million to build it and our post appraisal, so what we were gonna sell these things for was 21 to $22 million per house and this was all appraised. How much to build? $6.9 $6.9 to build with okay. a $22 million retail sale price. Got it. Okay. We've got a ton of equity and a ton of future profit in this thing. So my partner and I, when we looked at one, we said, this is great. Let's build three. So we were moving forward to build all three of these. And we came to market on our first one, July of 2008, we spent a bunch of money to have a big ad spread in Ski Magazine. It was worldwide. I mean, we were very deep in this deal. And come December, we submitted a draw request to the Bank of Denver, who had done our first loan for the first building. We sent a draw request for $1.2 million, and when we called the Bank of Denver to find out why they hadn't responded, the FDIC answered the phone. Oh, no. And they said, we're sorry, but the Bank of Denver has been taken over in receivership. They are no longer in business, and we are not honoring any of their outstanding construction loans. I said to the FDIC, I said, well, wait a minute. I got $1.2 million in vendors. I need to pay my framer. I need to pay my drywall guy. I need to pay the towel guy. I got all of these people that are expecting to be paid. And it's December 15th. It's Christmas time. They said, sorry, not our problem. Now... At this point, you've got a couple of ways you can go with this thing. You can either scramble and go find new money somewhere else to get everybody paid. The problem is it's December of 2008. So Lehman's gone down. The entire market is crashing. Banks are are constricting cash or, or any new loans like crazy. So what do you do? Well, what I learned through that experience, what I've now learned as a lender being on the other side, is the best way to get through a sticky, challenging situation or circumstance is to communicate with everybody involved. An old mentor of mine used to say that a customer will put up with a lot except for being ignored. And I feel like a lot of people, when they get into these tight situations, you know, their first emotional visceral response is to just kind of clam up Stop answering the phone, stop answering emails, and hope that the problem goes away. It's the proverbial head in the sand mentality. And I can tell you that that never works. And so for me, what I did is I called every single contractor, subcontractor, supplier on my list of line items that was owed money. And I went out and I sat down with each and every one of them. I said, look, here's where we're at. It's not a fun position to be in. And as a developer, as a lender, I don't want to be here. But here's the bottom line. There's no money to pay you with. I understand that you've already done the work, but we can't pay you. So here's what I can offer you. I can offer you 10 cents on the dollar, and I will pay you out of my own pocket. Or you can choose to sue me. You can go after me and get a judgment against me. You can lien the property. I said, but I'll tell you, given this current market that we're in, not only are we not going to get $22 million in a sale price on this thing, we're going to be lucky if we can get it done and just get it sold. So some of them accepted $0.10 on the dollar. Others said, well, you know, Lee, I'm going to let it ride and see where we end up. Let's fast forward now, Joe, four years. Mm. So this now puts us into 2012. I paid off the final payment to the final sub. I was not sued. I did not file bankruptcy. I didn't have to go down. Now, I put a lot of money out of my own pocket to get out of this thing. But at the end of the day, all of the investors, all of the creditors, every single one of them was dealt with. Now, they weren't paid in full by any means, but they all released me from future claims and ongoing judgments and the like. And it only came about because I communicated through that process. Mm-hmm. Now, the Paul Harvey or the rest of the story in 2013, we finally were able to short sale that property off and we got $3.2 million for it. And we were $7 just in construction. So what I've learned through this whole process, when the market is booming like it is now, I mean, things are hot. Things are moving rapidly. For the investor, the best advice I can give is get yourself into a cash-heavy position as quickly as you can. I don't believe that now is the time to be buying a bunch of assets, a bunch of rental properties, because you're going to be buying at the peak of the market. What we have been focusing on for the last 18 months and what we intend to focus on for the next 18 months is buying and flipping as rapidly as we can to build up cash reserves. Because if we've learned anything over the last hundred years is that the market is cyclical. It does the same thing every five to 10 years, depending on where in the country you live. And when the market is hot, you got to stockpile cash. And when the market tanks, you need to go up and buy all those troubled assets with the cash that you've got because nobody else has it. So it was a painful situation, but I would not change it for the world because I learned a ton through that process.
1: As far as how much money you had to pay out, what's the final dollar amount now It's eight years later?
0: Oh, you just want to pour salt in that wound, don't you, Joe? (laughs) 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 It ended up being about $2.5 million out of pocket.
1: Mm -hmm. And when you talk to the subs, when you talk to the lender, well, not the lender because the lender... you and your team didn't owe the lender, did you? Because the, the lender was out of the picture.
0: No, we owed the lender too because the lender had already extended $3 million to ah. get us to four-way construction, mm. but we had a $7 million line of credit. So we still had $4 million left that the bank had already approved mm. that we were supposed to be able to draw down to get the house constructed and finished. So when the Bank of Denver went under, not only was the FDIC not going to let us draw the remaining $4 million, but they were also calling the loan on the $3 million that we owed them. Hmm. So not not only are we not able to finish the house, which means we can't sell it to make a profit to get already paid, but we don't have any cash to finish the house because the bank froze our line. And now they want us to come up with $3 million to pay the loan off. So, I mean, it was... Man, I can't imagine it could have been any worse. But yeah. I, I don't want to say that, <laughs> knock on wood.
1: Yeah. You sold it for $3 million, thank goodness.
0: <laughs> well, we sold it for $3.2 But after three years of not making payments and interest acceleration and default fees, I mean, the bank was pushing us pretty aggressively and they brought us into foreclosure. So mm. we ended up having to short sale and negotiate that out too.
1: Mm. How many business partners did you have on the general partnership?
0: I had two other partners on that one.
1: What was that like, and how did you share responsibilities with them?
0: So we had brought in a silent partner who was a big developer in California, and he was hurting pretty badly already because the recession hit California before it hit the rest of the country. So he was already kind of filling the pains of that. And my partner and I, we were really brought in as the logistics guys, the idea guys, the marketing guys, and we're going to see the project through to fruition. So when everything kind of went a different direction, I took on the responsibility of negotiating with the bank because I've been a licensed broker for 15 years. So I was very familiar in burst and burst in short sale negotiation. So I took on the negotiation of that and I took on meeting with all of the subs and the suppliers while my other two partners scrambled to come up with enough cash to finish the house. So that it was at least habitable so we could get our certificate of occupancy and get it sold in a short sale setting so that we could at least get the bank paid off. But the great thing is, and the blessing in all this, the partners that I had brought into the transaction didn't bury their head in the sand either. Mm -hmm. Each one of us took an active role in working through the situation. You know, we felt like, hey, we got ourselves into this and we need to work to get everybody out of this. Mm -hmm. And I just wish that more people, especially the people we lend to, I wish that more people would take that approach.
1: Yeah. Less entitlement, more pick yourself up, dust yourself off and get things done and be resourceful and honor your word.
0: Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right.
1: Yeah. Well, that's what makes your story stand out among others, too, is that you're sharing this and you're telling us how you approached it. How were you all able to finish the construction when you, I suspect, word on the street in Park City, Utah was out about what was going on? So how did you find the right contractors who would finish it for you?
0: And that's what made the entire situation so interesting is that it wasn't just us. Mm -hmm. I mean, the contractors and the subs that we were using were building multiple properties on the same mountain. And it wasn't just us saying, hey, the bank froze my line. I mean, we had three other developers on the same street that had their lines frozen. So the way that we approached it with the subs was, look, guys, you've done a lot of work for a lot of people and nobody's paying you. So rather than squabble over money that none of us are getting, why don't we work through getting you some of the money that we're willing to spend to get this thing done? So it was, you know, let's put the past in a jar and we'll deal with that when it's time. But right now we need to get this thing done so we can at least get it sold off. So we were buying supplies at at dramatic discounts. I mean, the house was 14,000 square feet. So imagine the tile and the carpet and the flooring bill alone. Mm -hmm. So we bought all of that in containers at dramatic discounts. And we just finished the entire thing out with cash. And cash was at a premium in those days, as you know. And it was incredibly painful. But the subs and the suppliers, their choices were twofold, either fight us, which is going to incur legal fees and a bunch of expenses that they don't have the bankroll anymore to float, or keep the guys that you have at least working and will pay at the end of every week to make sure that you at least have money to pay laborers for that week's worth of work. Because everybody was hurting so badly in those days. I mean, it was pandemic. It was unbelievable. When
1: you're talking about this, you've mentioned how they think about it and you're thinking about it from their perspective Is that something that you found to be important in this deal is thinking about it from their side?
0: Yeah, definitely putting yourself in the shoes of your customers, your clients, your vendors. But looking at this from a 10,000 foot view as to what's going on in the market as a whole because like I mentioned, we weren't the only one that was experiencing this. I mean, anybody who was involved in real estate, real estate development, construction, even rental properties, I mean financing literally dried up. My brother in law, who was a builder in two thousand five, six and seven, he ended up going under and filing bankruptcy simply because they couldn't work through those challenges. So Everybody was experiencing that. And we were having cash flow issues and we knew everybody else was having cash flow issues. So it was really sitting down and saying, okay, guys, here's the money we have left. Here's the work that's got to be done. Are you willing to do the work for X number of dollars? And we basically just divided that the pie, knowing that they had families, they had kids, they had mouths they needed to feed. They had laborers that had worked for them for 10, 15, 20 years that they wanted to do right by. So kind of understanding all of the dynamics of what it takes to run a successful business and keep your payroll covered and keep your crews working, all of that knowledge and putting ourselves in their shoes, I think, is really what helped us navigate through it.
1: Thinking back to after you knew that things weren't going to be able to pan out how you projected, but then you also realized that it was going to take a long time and you've At this point, already put a significant amount of your own money into it. What was your thought process? Where was your head
0: at? From the standpoint of moving forward or from the standpoint of getting the mess handled?
1: Just your psychology. What were you thinking? Like When you woke up every morning, were you like, oh, damn, (laughs) 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 another day and the end is probably not near? What was your thought?
0: my approach was twofold. First of all, I knew that I had to wake up to make new money because I have kids and I have a wife and I have a family to feed. So I had to be focused on the future and generating new revenue. But I also had to deal with the past and dealing with the problems of yesterday to get those capped off and cleaned up. So going back to being proactive in your approach, One of the advantages of being proactive and really taking control of a a negative or difficult situation is that you can be in the driver's seat. So what I would try to do each and every day was schedule appointments or phone calls or conference calls with the people that I needed to meet with to work through these challenges. And what that did is it didn't leave any openings in the day for surprises, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that people are most afraid of is answering the phone, you know, for fear that it's the next creditor or collection agent. And it's the worst thing you can do. What I do or what I did in that situation is I answered every phone call. I would see who it is, what they were calling about, and I would say, you know what, I do need to talk with you guys. I do need to work with you on that because I owe you money. It's a legitimate amount of money that I need to pay. But now's not a good time. So can I set an appointment with you to talk on, say, Thursday at 3 o'clock Pacific time? And I would set appointments for each one of those things, knowing that it was going to be a negative call. It was going to be incredibly painful. I was going to have to throw myself at the mercy of the creditor and say, here's where I'm at. Here's what I got. Here's what I can do. And in some cases, it was, look, I can't do anything. I maxed out to the hilt. But if you give me 12 or 18 months, I might be able to get you something. So rather than calling me you know, 10 times a day, why don't we touch base once a quarter? And I'll give you a play-by-play about where I am, if things are improving. And I did that with every single creditor. And it took away the fear of answering the phone Mm -hmm. because I knew who was pursuing me. I knew what they wanted. I knew what they wanted to chat about. And I was able to control the process because I took it head on. Mm
1: -hmm. How many creditors were there that you were continuing to keep in the loop?
0: Oh, over a hundred. Wow. Yep.
1: If you could go back to 2006, would you take on this project? If so, how would you approach it?
0: Well, that's really an interesting question. Um, (laughs) Because, you know, even as I think back to 2006, I mean, it was such a euphoric high I was a real estate investor. I was a broker. I mean, we were making money hand over fist. So everything we touched turned to gold in 2006. Mm-hmm. Now, my error was in thinking that that was because I'm a genius. It had nothing to do with that. And I'm not a genius. I'm just a lucky idiot most of the time. But I really didn't think there was an end in sight. Now, looking back, there was some red flags that I should have recognized as being red flags, but I just brushed it off as being a market anomaly. But Now, looking back, I wouldn't have done the project. Knowing what was coming, I would have started selling my assets off a lot earlier. And I've got a funny story that I call how strippers saved my business. Do you have time to hear it? Yeah, yeah. Of course. Well, (laughs) with that title, absolutely. (laughs) So my real estate office was right next door to a real estate school. So we had this two-story building and there was a breezeway staircase that went up right through the middle of the building. And I had my attorney sitting next door to me. So he and I both shared a window that overlooked this alleyway. And my attorney, he wasn't my full-time attorney. He was just, I gave him office space as part of my payment to him. One of his clients, however, owned the local strip club in which this was in Salt Lake City, Utah, Murray, Utah at the time. And my attorney would go and meet with his client at his place of business. Now, you don't just go to a strip club for business and not see the employees walking around, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So one day, Bill comes into my office. And this was, I think it was like May or June of 2007. And Bill comes into my office and he says, Lee, sell everything. I said, what are you talking about, sell everything? I said, the market's better than it's ever been. I said, I'm making money out of business. He said, I don't care. He says, sell everything. He said, I just saw three of my clients' employees, strippers, yep. Yep. walk up and go into the real estate school. He says, when you can make more money selling real estate than you can make taking your clothes off for men, it's a bubble and it's going to burst and you've got to get out. Mm. So that day, I actually started listing. I had a ton of rental properties. I had a bunch of properties in rehab. I had homes that I was building, new construction on the retail side, plus my Park City Developments. And I put everything on the market that day and started to systematically sell through my entire inventory. And I will say that if I wouldn't have taken Bill's advice and started selling when I did, I wouldn't have had the cash flow necessary to get myself out of that Park City fiasco. Mm -hmm. Do you have multiple
1: streams of income now? I ask that because when the next cycle hits and the sky starts falling, I've heard that it's nice to have some multiple streams like property management, for example, and things of that nature.
0: And that's something that we've worked to build and not so much to the point that they're recession-proof, meaning that we had another 2007, 8, nine episode that we would be shored up and we wouldn't have challenges. But certainly, we now are involved in a lot more arenas and rather than fearing the change of market. It's about knowing which strategy is going to work in each individual market cycle. So when the market turns again, and I do believe that it will within the next 12 to 18 months, we're already starting to see signs of slowing in Southern California, which is kind of where the market is created. So when we see a slow in Southern California, you know, there's an old adage that all good ideas start in California and they're illegal by the time they get to Florida. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So we really watch what's going on in the Southern California real estate market. And we're seeing days on market getting longer and longer and longer. We're seeing more and more properties where there's price reductions prior to a sale. So that tells us there's a market slowdown happening. Now, the rest of the country usually doesn't feel it for like 8 to 18 months, depending on where you're at, whether you're in an A, B or C market. But as that now starts to make its way across the country, It's going to affect the kind of business that we're doing. So, for example, right now, we are buying a lot of property at foreclosure sale, and we're doing a lot of fix and flip retail business. We are also lending nationwide to people that are buying for sale by owner stuff, listed REO assets. But as soon as that market starts to shift, we're going to see a slowdown in retail sales which means it's going to become a buyer's market. Sellers are going to have to offer incentives. They're going to have to offer financing. They're going to have to dramatically reduce their price to get their property sold, which creates a tremendous environment for buying assets and holding inventory like rental property. We will also see 6 to 12 months post that an area where we're going to see an increase in foreclosure filings, which now creates an amazing opportunity for short sales, foreclosure action acquisition, as well as wholesaling. Now, that's on our real estate acquisition and development side. On the other side of our business, which is the lending side, we now take that information and we roll it out to our customer base because we have 500,000 investors across the country that we work with. So as we start to see these market shifts, we roll that out. So that we can begin to get our buyers and our borrowers to adjust how they're buying, where they're buying and what they're buying so that they're not affected as dramatically as others will be when that change occurs. And we can kind of start hedging our bets against those loans that we have out around the country. You know, the old joke about what do you call a private money lender in a down market cycle? And the answer is landlord. uh, (laughs) Because we go from being a lender, having our borrowers not pay us back, having to foreclose that inventory, and then having to manage it either as a rental or manage it as an REO until we can get it sold off. So yes, we have multiple streams of income to answer your question, but it's really now going through what we saw in the late 90s, the early 2000s, and of course, 2006, 2008. I think we're much better prepared to know what strategy to use at what time in that market cycle.
1: Wow. This conversation was chock full of so many lessons, and I am so grateful that we had you on the show again. The story of the development deal gone bad, but as you said, you communicated with everybody involved because it's the only approach to take, quite frankly, that that will maintain your sanity and the stress levels that are required that won't lead you into the hospital with a stroke or a heart attack. I mean, right. You just you can't fear the phone. As you said, you took away the fear of answering the phone. You knew it was gonna be a negative call when you scheduled the call. You knew it was gonna be painful, but here's where I'm at. And here's what I got, and I will keep you posted. And when you call me, I will answer. Mm-hmm. And this is the situation. That is a takeaway for any best ever listener who will come across a situation like this. Hopefully not on this scale, as I'm sure you wouldn't wish this on other people. Uh, That's right. But the principles certainly stand uh, nonetheless, regardless of what deal we're talking about. I'm very, very appreciative of you sharing this. I know it's still a little bit raw because it's only been two, three years since it was resolved, but boy, thank you for that. And then also the psychology that you had when you were going through this and how you took the proactive approach and then also... What you're doing now to prepare for something like that to happen again is staying cash heavy, taking a look at days on market. You see it's getting longer, looking at the price reduction. So knowing what type of strategy will you take based on what part of the market cycle that we're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Lee, where can the best of listeners learn more about you and get in contact with you or your team?
0: They can read more about us at cogocapital.com, C-O-G-O, cogocapital.com. They can reach me personally at Lee, L-E-E, the number one, at cogocapital.com. And if they want to learn more about the lending side of our business and the funding side, the private equity side, they can go to securedinvestmentcorp.com. Awesome.
1: Well, Lee, thank you again for being on the show. hope you have a best ever weekend and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Joe. Best ever listeners, Matt Bowles, who was a guest on episode 289. His company, Maverick Investor Group, has a special report just for you on how to avoid the seven biggest mistakes in real estate that investors make in the 2016 boom cycle. Get yours free at maverickinvestorgroup.com forward slash best ever. That's M-A-V-E-R-I-C-K investorgroup.com forward slash forward slash best ever.